1: It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast.
0: And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli, that's Bud Elliott, I'm Chip Patterson. Time to open that big old bag of mail. A reminder, if you want to get in on the mailbag, you can do so by leaving us a five-star review. Leave your review and then leave us a question. We will add it to the big old bag of mail and we will tackle it in a future mailbag episode. Before we get into your questions, and and we are excited to do so, we've got a little bit of news that we want to make sure that we hit before we get on into the weekend. Uh, Earlier this week, We got the very disappointing news here on this Uh, once was a full-throated Georgia podcast. Our allegiances were questioned and now, you know, kind of seemed at least judging by our SEC East spring gleaning that we were itching our way back to being a Georgia pod. So as a wishy-washy Georgia pod, what is our reaction to the news that wide receiver number one, George Pickens, former five-star prospect, uh, has flashed but has yet to really put together a full season of production that I think a lot of us had hoped to see. Some of that I do put at the feet of the quarterback situation, especially if you take the small sample size of JT Daniels last four games and and what Pickens was able to do there. And some of that, you know, maybe is some Pickens stuff, but without a doubt, in terms of raw talent, in terms of the ceiling of what he could be paired with JT Daniels in 2021, losing George Pickens, to a torn ACL uh, is devastating to the Bulldogs offense. He is uh, going to undergo surgery. He would likely be out the entire season. Um, I'm. We don't have any official timetable. They're not going to set an official timetable. But, you know, as me doing some quick calendar math in my head, I mean, we'd be talking like return for the playoffs or bust. And that kind of depends on if George is playing for the national championship game. Because if George is not, I mean, are you, are you coming back for uh, the Alamo Bowl? Or, I mean, SEC doesn't have the Alamo bowl, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, so our, our thoughts uh, on the, the injury, Georgia's offense, whether Kiris Jackson and Jermaine Burton can be able to keep that level high and be able to allow this JT Daniels Bulldogs passing attack to flourish. Uh, what are we thinking about the breaking news out of Athens from earlier this week?
1: I think it's a significant blow to, to Georgia's national title hopes. And I think because we, we've spent a lot of time talking about how the receiver position is becoming more and more important. And I, I wrote about this on Thursday. You know, you look at the NFL draft in recent years. And you look at the amount of receivers that have been taking in the first round. There have been, let's see, since 2017, there have been 13 receivers selected in the first round. Seven of those guys played on teams that played in the college football playoff at least once. If we look at this spring's draft, the only three receivers that you see in every single mock draft, no matter you know who's doing it, are Jalen Waddell, DeFonta Smith, and Jamar Chase, three receivers who won national titles and went to the playoff. We're seeing that in an era now where the top quarterbacks are all going to kind of a limited pool of schools, which is helping get those schools into the college football playoff. What has separated those teams from each other, mostly where they're all talented on defense, they're all talented everywhere. They have the best quarterbacks has been your receivers and the talent you have at the receiver position and the production you get from it. So I think if Georgia wants to consider itself not just a team that could get to the playoff but a national title contender, losing Pickens hurts because if we go back to last season, and you mentioned it, Chip, how he came out at the end of the year with JT Daniels, George Pickens, he played four games with Dwan Mathis and Stetson Bennett, and he played four games with JT Daniels. In the four games pre-Daniels, he had he ran 138 routes and averaged 1.01 yards per target with JT Daniels he ran 128 routes and averaged 11.66 yards per target and his usage was essentially the same the average depth of his target was about 10 yards with both Bennett Mathis and with Daniels so he was being used the same he just had a better quarterback getting him the ball and the cuz he's we saw with Bennett especially he was more He was inside receivers. Yeah. Inside between the hash marks, he was successful. You got him outside the hash marks. Not really very good. But we also saw Jermaine Burton and Karis Jackson's numbers had similar kind of improvements with Daniels than they did with the other quarterbacks. So it's not like a death blow to Georgia to lose pickets because Jackson and Burton are still very talented players. And they have John Fitzpatrick, who was very useful for them at the tight end position last year and who could, you know, maybe take a bigger role in the passing game this year. So I don't think, like, losing Pickens is something that ends their season if he's not available, but I think that when it gets to those games, whether it's the SEC title game or if it's getting to the playoff and playing against those other elite teams, that's when the absence of Pickens, I think, will be most noticeable.
2: Specifically, like, let, let's let's go back to the list that we always have of the teams that have beaten Nick Saban teams at Alabama when we think they were trying. So, like, I take out that Utah game and, and I, I, I take out the Oklahoma game, you know, it's basically you had an absolute stud at wide receiver who ended up being really, really good in college or awesome in the NFL or both, or at least drafted highly in the NFL. Or you had Cam Newton, right? And Jordan doesn't have Cam Newton. So if they wanted to beat Alabama in the SC title game, like that, that's to, that to me is the game that is most changed about this. Like, like, like Tom said, it you generally need some like Nick Saban dares you to beat one on one coverage and you need somebody to win. Now they have some dudes on this. I don't think we could consider them the best receiving core in the SEC like I did if if they didn't have other good players. Kiaris Jackson is a good player. Jermaine Burton has a lot of potential. But this is a big deal. Like, Kiaris Jackson is an awesome two. I don't think he's an awesome one. You know, Jermaine Burton is a three. Hell yeah, all day. Jermaine Burton as a one or a two. Not as sold. So this, this certainly... Yeah, I think Tom's perspective is right. It Doesn't really impact their ability to win 9, 10 games, maybe eleven games. It does impact their ability against the best
0: teams. Dominic Blaylock coming back from an injury suffered in preseason practice in 2020, when he was out as uh, when he played as a freshman, uh, played a, played a decent bit. Um, you know, did a had had another knee injury there. Like, is he going to be somebody who's a special teams factor as well? He's a big question mark for me. What's like, what, what is his ceiling? And no one is expecting him to come in and be George Pickens or replace George Pickens. But if we want to talk about an X factor, and if you want to talk about like just a, a a useful skill position addition to what the names we have mentioned right here, what is the confidence and what is, I mean, by the way, we all know this is Mookie's son, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what is the potential for Dominic Blaylock to come in and be able to be a spark and be someone who can really help round out this offense?
2: I mean, I've seen him as a recruit a lot. Uh, very balanced kid, good route runner, good athlete. Does not have George Pickens' size and like playmaking ability. So I, again, I think like his ceiling is more of a really nice, like refined two. Um, the, the one guy that I, I'm very interested in seeing, because he's a player I've been been high on for a long time, uh, at least as a recruit, uh, is is Marcus Roseme, right? Marcus Roseme uh, actually snapped his ankle in that Florida game last year, catching that touchdown. If you guys recall, really pretty mm-hmm. gruesome injury. But just some of the biggest hands I've ever shook on a receiver as a recruit catches everything. Big body guy. I, I think he could be that red zone threat if he comes back healthy. Uh, that Pickens provided, but guys, we can't sugarcoat this. Like this is tough. They yeah. they have luckily Georgia recruits at a really high level. So other teams would be more screwed if they lost to George Pickens, uh, but it's not a like it's it's not a small loss. No, it's I, I yeah, it's it's like you said and we've
1: talked about it. They're, they're still going to win nine, ten, eleven games. So it's like when you look at it from that perspective, some people are like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. But for a team with national title hopes, it's a huge loss.
0: Uh, other bit of news from the week: uh, Lincoln Riley. Making some headlines as uh, quarterback Chandler Morris, former Sooner, is trying to has transferred to TCU, and he is not um, he has not been released by Oklahoma, according to TCU coach Gary Patterson. And Lincoln Rodley responded, he says, "This particular situation for us." Is about something that we believe in. Myself, the leadership here at OU, we think it is unhealthy for college football to encourage intra conference transfers. That's something we've been adamantly opposed to for a long time. I get that the landscape is changing. We're certainly watching that and we will adapt as the world changes, but this has nothing to do with that or the person. Chandler Morris did a tremendous job here, he's a terrific young man. I think that it is a good rule to change, and now players could have the ability and freedom to go to any school they want, but I do think that inter-conference transfers can complicate things. I think that coaches understand the big picture and understand that's going to bring a lot of negatives, and I just don't want that in the game. So this is... we've Earlier, we had the, e, the ACC uh, took an old rule that had been on the books for decades, which added an additional transfer penalty for anybody who moved to another school within the conference, Uh, and that was also a rule that was only applied to a few sports. One didn't even apply to uh, the entire gamut of ACC athletics. So they took it off the books. This is like the opposite of that. It's like, no, I I really want to make sure that we've got the penalties in place for anybody who wants to move from one school to another, especially as it pertains to immediate eligibility. There is some, like – so what Baker Mayfield was a walk on, Baker Mayfield had to sit out, but I mean, come on Lincoln, like Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, uh, you know what Lincoln Riley did? He saw a fire sale in Knoxville, went and got like a handful of Tennessee's best players and decided that he was going to bring them in. Is it is it just a little bit too easy to sit back and roll my eyes at Lincoln Riley's comments here, or does he have a point and is there from the you know, beyond the, the coach's paranoia perspective, like, is there something to, uh, trying to prevent intra-conference transfers?
1: I, I think you can roll your eyes while still thinking he has a point.
0: Ooh, please explain.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I, I think what we've seen is Lincoln Riley is no longer the cool young hip dad. And now he's, he's the, The football coach where it's like, yeah, yeah, hey, I'm just I'm just a cool guy. I'm young. You know, already we've got a new attitude here. Now he's developing into the old veteran grizzled, salty. No, not on my watch. Get off my lawn. Because, yes, Lincoln Riley has benefited greatly from transfers. And it is different. Like Baker Mayfield transferred Oklahoma a year or he sat out the year before Lincoln Riley came and took over as offensive coordinator. Kyler Murray transferred from Texas A&M. He had to sit out before he was able to take on the starting job at Oklahoma. And obviously Jalen Hurts was a grad transfer. So it's not the same situation. But for a coach who has benefited so much from transfers, it is somewhat hypocritical to be like, nope, not going to let him. I'm not going to release him I'll, I'll take somebody else's players, but you can't have mine. But saying that, I get it because it is different in the conference and it is sort of different when it's going to be a team that, you know, you're playing. And again, Lincoln Riley has firsthand experience of knowing what a transfer quarterback can do for you. So to give one to your conference rival, if especially if having dealt with him every day in practice, if you think that he Chandler Morris is a QB that could have an impact on TCU. And the only reason he's not playing for you is because you have Spencer Rattler then yeah, I would get why you wouldn't want to do it. I could see why it would be a headache. It's just for me, at the end of the day, Lincoln Riley is getting paid a lot of money and no job that comes paid with the salary that he gets or any other coach gets at this level comes without headaches. So you just kind of have to suck it up and deal with it. And I think that it's just... From a PR perspective, this isn't going to win many battles for Lincoln Riley publicly. I don't think it's going to make him look good. I think that when it comes to recruiting, this is something that could be used against him. Maybe he's not as player-friendly as you thought he was and that kind of stuff. So I think that to come out this publicly against it is probably a bad decision, considering that he's probably going to have to eventually allow Chandler Morris to play for TCU to begin with. So fighting against a rising and tide
0: Is Chandler silly. Morris going to beat out Max Duggan? I don't know. I...
2: I think eventually these leagues will do what the ACC and Big Ten have done, which is to get rid of this rule because mm-hmm. there are certain things coaches can think, but maybe shouldn't say. And one thing that probably shouldn't happen is putting non competes on non employees, right? Like we're employees. I've got to deal with 24 seven. I can't just jump to rivals. If I was a contractor, guess what? I could. Student athletes are not employees. That's very clear. The NCAA says this nonstop. It's basically the false premise upon which their entire business model is built. Doing things like putting transfer restrictions are essentially non-competes on people that are not employees. That's really not a great look. And for that reason, I think eventually these conferences will do away with this. Of course, we all get it. Tom said it perfectly, right? Like, yeah, man, this guy's part of our team and now he's going to jump to the competition. Okay, but coaches do it all the time. Right, I mean, like Mike Leach was the OC for, for Oklahoma's national title team, and then he went and became the head coach at Texas Tech. Didn't have to sit here. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, this is just—it's surprising to me that Lincoln was the guy that said this because he was so vocal and and such a proponent of players' rights and social issues last summer, right? And then now he's doing this. This is very like curmudgeonly. I'd expect this from a guy you know who was born in like like the '60s or '70s. Not 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 Lincoln Riley. It surprised me a little bit.
0: Hey, Cover 3 listeners, it's literally madness time in the sports world and with the NCAA tournament in full swing, but... You're a diehard sports fan, which means we know you want to stay in the know with all sports. And that's where CBS Sports HQ is your streaming answer. I mean, just think about what's on tap this week alone. We got Major League Baseball spring training. There's the NBA trade deadline. UFC 260 coming up. NFL free agency fallout and draft coverage. Golf picks got a big old bracket there on the links. And the U.S. men's national team getting back on the pitch. We could go on, but you get it. Sports never sleeps, and neither does CBS Sports HQ. It's available on your computer, on your phone, via the CBS Sports app, and on your connected TV via the CBS Sports app. I mean, I leave it on all day. I was watching Avery Johnson break down how to beat Gonzaga just to distract my eight-month old so I could put clothes on him. It was the only way I could do it. Thank you, Avery. Thank you, CBS Sports HQ. If you live and breathe sports, I'd encourage you to leave it on all day as well. Well, I am uh thank also, you.
1: Shout out to Avery for shouting out HQ producers on air last week.
0: Killer. It was awesome. I mean, I, I Avery, I enjoyed his, uh, his, his coverage when he was on the call. I thought it was a, uh, it was awesome. So love having him as part of the CBS sports HQ family. Love, uh, love being able to, when we do share a segment or anything like that. But again, I just, I, I, I keep it on all day. So uh, great, Great suggestion from Coco to make sure that we hit the Lincoln Riley stuff because it is the subject of one of our questions from the big old bag of mail. Uh, Ohio Bobcats super fan asks, love the podcast. It's an immediate listen when I get the notification. Question, why are so many folks in love with Lincoln Riley over Ryan Day? I often hear the argument that Day took over Urban's program so he hasn't proved himself yet. Did Lincoln Riley take over Kansas, or did he take over for Bob Stoops? Would love to hear why Riley is often looked at more highly than Day is. Thanks for the answer. Go Ohio Bobcats.
1: I, I think that that gap is going to close considerably this year. Like when we do our eventual coach rankings before the season begins, I, w- I would be I'd be surprised if Day isn't like right next to Riley or even past him. But I think that the reason it's been that way in the past is because Lincoln Riley didn't inherit nothing at Oklahoma, but Lincoln Riley was brought in as the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma to specifically fix what had gone wrong with the team because they'd had like a couple, they were dropping to eight and five. They were not the elite college football playoff team that you're seeing now. They had flaws offensively. Riley came in, revamped their offense, and then they took off. And then Stoops decided that he'd rather go golf and chill on the beach. Respect. Respect that decision and it was handed to Lincoln Riley to run it and since Lincoln Riley took over Oklahoma's went in the Big 12. It's going to the playoff like every year. Ryan Day inherited a team that had won a national title a couple of years before was kind of already ready-made, but he did come in in that same kind of style to run the offense, but it wasn't like Ohio State's offense needed to be fixed. It was the guy who had been running that offense had left for another head coaching job. So Day comes in and now he's handed the keys to, the, to Ohio State, it's an urban-built team. And you can't deny that Urban came into Ohio State and completely changed a lot of things and revamped them and made them a different operation than the direction they'd been heading in at the end of the Trestle era and in the one year where Luke Fickle was in charge as an interim. So I think that's why Riley probably gets more respect. Is just, it's you feel like he'd accomplished more. But now that Ohio State has been to the playoff a couple of years and got to the title game last year, I think Ryan Day, especially if they do it again this year, when Ryan Day is in his third season and you're getting further and further away from what Urban Meyer did and you're getting your own players in and you're still recruiting at an elite level, okay, now you're starting to see the signs that Ryan Day is capable of maintaining it, possibly even improving things. So that's when the respect is going to come.
2: Tom took all my talking points. Um, (laughs) My bad. No, I, 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 I totally agree. I mean... I guess the only I'd maybe add is that I, I think it's easier to recruit to Ohio state than it is to Oklahoma slightly. And that you can argue that Lincoln has brought them further along. Like day has reached the finals. Oklahoma is not, but Oklahoma's program was not in as good a shape as Ohio state's was. That's basically. Yeah. And Tom said that. So
0: uh, this one back to your busy B question, but have you seen this one?
2: We've, is this the, uh, no? Uh, okay, I, I was on a meeting when you when you texted the, the question, so I, I, I only saw a couple. All
0: right, D. Knoll, nineteen ninety three, says busy bee and team recruiting. Big busy bee in Live Oak, Florida, where I ten meets seventy five. Also the home of the Suwannee River. Is that is that your go to busy bee? I feel like you were you were that out- is the busy bee, okay. yeah. And that's like yeah. the the good busy bee. Are there multiple busy bees?
2: I don't really know. I don't really drive west of, uh, west of Tallahassee. Like uh, if I go to west Tallahassee, I'm taking a flight because I'm probably going to New Orleans.
0: Okay, cool. So we've, I mean, he was he was getting in on the uh, the busy bee, big busy bee in Live Oak, Florida, where I-10 meets 75. It's also the home of the Sewanee River. Uh, who do you see as the biggest risers in team recruiting? What teams are trending up into the more elite recruiting status? So
2: like, Re- read back one more time so that which teams are recruiting or trending up into the more elite recruiting status correct just in that region like i have to tie this to the busy bee no no just I, in I, just, I, I
0: wanted to give them i wanted <laughs> who to give, is
2: using the busy bee the most effectively Yeah, i, <laughs> I was like uh
0: i mean listen I don't, I don't speak florida i was just if a listener wanted to get in on this busy bee i 10 75 i mean listen I, I could talk about 40 i can talk about 85 i can talk about 95 i don't know anything about 70 and i 10
2: Sure. So there's there's a couple I can highlight, right? We 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 know the top recruiters generally are Alabama, who just signed the number one class of all time. Ohio State, you know, Clemson, who does so despite like their very high character standards for the most part, and they don't take a lot of lot of uh, questionable, you know, take type type risk. Those are generally your your three plus Georgia, and then sometimes LSU. You know, your next group is kind of that like A and M, Oklahoma. Um, probably missing somebody here off the top of my head. Uh, you know, I already said Georgia. So I would say some schools on the upswing. Uh, Number one is Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin uh, has signed their top two recruiting classes in their history in the past two years. When fans ask me, hey, like if we win games, recruits will come, right? I'm like, kind of, but recruiting is still sales. And it does help if you have a good product to sell. I think sometimes people underestimate how long you need to win for in order to kind of change your image in the minds of recruits, recruits, parents, high school coaches, handlers, all that kind of stuff, but Wisconsin has won at that level now for, you know, twenty plus years. So it, it really, I, I think, has helped establish them as, as a more uh, desirable destination for kids to, co- to go go see, especially out of region kids. And I, I think the early official visit periods have also helped with this. Although, obviously, last year we didn't have them, but I think that's something that's going to help Wisconsin going forward. Having some kids officially visit in the spring and summer when it's a little bit nicer weather up Tom's Way and and, and north of Tom, obviously, so. I would say Wisconsin could be one um, Maryland under Mike Loxley. I think there are still some questions about how good of a coach Mike Loxley is, but there's no doubt that he is recruiting better than Maryland did under Durkin and certainly better than they did under uh, Randy. So those would, would, would be two. Um, obviously if he's asking this question, he wants me to say Florida state and Florida state is off to a scorching hot start, right? Th- th- this year, they, they, I don't say they lucked into it because that undercuts kind of the effort they put into it. But Who's the guy who grew
0: up a Florida State fan who's a stud from that class? What was his name? Yeah,
2: his name is Travis Hunter. He is no doubt the best corner in the class. And you can make a pretty good argument that he's also the best receiver in the class. And he's also their best recruiter by far. Like the guy grew up a huge Knowles fan. Like he knows like the Knowles from the 90s. His, you know, his grandma is a big-time big FSU fan, I believe, and he's from Palm Beach originally, even though he lives in Atlanta. So he's just kind of reached out and, and helped them get some absolute studs. Will they stay as a top-10 class in the country? I think some of that depends on how they look this fall and, and what their record is, how competitive they are in some games. But they, they are, they're at less of a disadvantage this year than they were last year, uh, and this really goes for all schools, I think, who hired a new coach last year. Uh, because they'd never got to meet any of these kids in person at their school, and they never really got to have kids on campus. This year, everybody has basically established relationships over Zoom, so they're at less of a disadvantage, right? And I think you're seeing some of the recruiting talents on that staff, you know, shine through. Uh, Coca also had a really good one here. He, he just dropped in the chat in North Carolina. I think UNC and even that division, Georgia Tech. To some, you know, some they're they're different stages in their development. I think, but. North Carolina under Mac Brown has done a really good job. You know, they, they've had some classes in, in that top 10, top 15 range. If they really ball out this year, I could definitely see North Carolina being a team that takes a leap, right? This is sort of a, a prove it year. They've had some nice years under Mac, obviously they made it to the Orange Bowl last year, but this is sort of the year everybody's pointed to for a while for them. I think UNC is a great, great addition there by Coca. There's no doubt. They they do a really good job there. Um, so those would be some teams that, that I would highlight. And th- to throw our guys out West bone, you know, Arizona state, right. Is they, they out-recruit UCLA, they out-recruit Arizona. It's pretty much Oregon USC. And then the number three there used to be Washington. And now it's kind of like Arizona state or Washington. And they're, they're doing a really nice job.
0: This next question, Bobby a from NJ Jersey.
1: One a coca's boys. That's yeah, right. This, this is a plant.
0: Uh, which teams from Power Five conferences have no realistic shot at ever making a four-team playoff?
2: Well, you got to create us haters. The Rutgers board already hates us for what we said yesterday on, or I guess what I said about giving you guys five to one odds on three conference wins. So we'll start there. <laughs> Rutgers has no shot of ever making the playoff.
1: Kansas. See, I, I don't think there is a Power 5 school that doesn't have a shot of making the okay. playoff. I think everybody, if you're in a Power 5 conference, you have a shot. Like, Kansas has been to an Orange Bowl. Okay, if so Kansas this is no get to an Orange Bowl and get to a playoff. Michigan State made the playoff.
0: This is the flip side of your no group of five team will ever make the yeah. playoff. Like if if Tom's going to dig himself in on the fourteen playoff, will never have a group of five team. Then you at least need to open your hearts and minds to any power five team to potentially rise up, win its conference, and make the college football playoff.
1: Yeah, and I think that, I mean obviously schools like Kansas and Rutgers and Illinois and Oregon State and all these kind of schools and Vanderbilt don't have the highest chance of reaching the college football playoff compared to their counterparts but if you're in a power five conference and you have a great season and you win your conference that puts you in the playoff most often see I so would they all have a chance
0: I would think that there's a like I I would feel a little bit more confident almost at tackling it from like, where do I think it is the most difficult? Like I could take about half the sec and maybe put it on the list by just thinking like, yeah, well like Alabama might have a down year, but is Alabama and LSU and Georgia and Florida and Auburn, are they all going to have a down year at the same time? I, and so it's almost like the, I would be more willing to entertain the any power five can make it in like big 12, I mean, like you're really just dealing with Ohio State, right? I mean, like see all
2: right. Can we change the question slightly? And then I think I think we might get Tom to give a different answer. What if we change it to we'll not make the playoff as the playoff is currently constituted and as the conferences are currently constituted? So like no conference realignment, no expansion. Does that change your opinion, Tom? Is getting into a four team playoff? Is the question still who has no chance?
1: Yeah. Then no. Because they all have Mm. a chance. They can all get in. And Chip, my counter to your SEC argument is that I think that being in the SEC enhances your ability to get to the college football playoff. Because if Arkansas has that year where it doesn't, you don't need Alabama, LSU, Auburn and all them to have down years. You just need to have a great year yourself where you beat Alabama. And if you win the division, then you win the SEC. No SEC champion is getting left out of the playoff, no matter
0: who it is. Agree. All right. Well, he's got a list. Uh, my list, and this is uh just, huh, mean. My list: Kansas, Oklahoma State (parentheses, little brother syndrome). I don't think that little brother syndrome would keep you from making. I mean, this guy,
2: wait. This is your list, or the, or the questioner's list?
0: This is Bobby A. from NJ. Yeah. Oklahoma State nearly made the BCS title game. Yeah, I can't agree with ago. that. Yeah. In, in Michigan State, if you're going to talk about little brother syndrome, shout out to Mike Hart and Mark D'Antonio. But like Michigan State made the college football playoff. Uh, South Carolina, also little brother syndrome. That's his notes, not mine. Different wake, conference. Wake, Vandy, parentheses, sorry, Barton. Oregon State, parentheses, LBS. Now he's got an acronym for it. Uh, Rutgers, Cal, Syracuse, Arkansas, Texas Tech, Arizona.
1: Here's like,
2: here's almost all those.
1: Yeah. Like his list is a list of schools who will not, are not never going to be favorites, who will have a hard time getting there, who would need a lot of things to work in their favor. But again, the question was who would never have it?
0: Came came too harsh on him. Bobby A from NJ, Jersey, just getting nasty on him. Uh, I want to tell you about the all new Stitcher podcast app. It's been rebuilt from the ground up to make it easier to listen to podcasts on the go or on the revamped web player. Stitcher is the home to all your favorite podcasts from classics like My Favorite Murder, This American Life, and How Did This Get Made, plus all the CBS shows, Eye on College Basketball, Fantasy Baseball Today, and of course, your favorite, the Cover 3 podcast. In Stitcher, you have more control, like setting your download preferences per show Download all of ours, just go to your preferences, download all of them right to your device, maybe even you know twice and stuff stuff like that, uh, and the ability to listen at virtually any speed. With Stitcher, you can listen to your podcasts anytime, anywhere, so give the all-new Stitcher app a try. Download it in the App Store or at stitcherapp.com slash download. Coming up on the other side, more from the big old bag of mail, including Has the transfer portal changed quarterback recruiting and evaluation? We go inside the minds of some of these coaches as they look at the most important position on the field and more next. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. So this question, uh, this, all right, here we go. Um, great pod as always great additions in bud Danny, however, want to give a shout out to chip and Tom for always bringing knowledge and always being flexible to work with new pod members. <laughs> long time <laughs> fan, clearly. Uh, actually, it's definitely a long time fan question. Uh, QB transfers have such a major impact over the past decade or so, and especially the last five years. Do you see teams recruiting higher upside players, maybe with a lower floor, knowing that they can always go to the portal to fix the problem if they miss? Missing at the QB position now can be just a transfer away instead of the usual two to three year recruiting process, spring practice development, and easing in process etc.
2: You know it sounds great in theory, um, but I'm going to say generally no, for this reason. A lot of these really high, like high ceiling kids, they don't want to sit for a super long time. And you make you may be able to sell them, hey man, this is a three year project. Like you have a big arm, but you have no accuracy right now, and you really have no idea how to read a defense. I need you to sit for two years. I need you to trust me. I need you to be patient. Man, you get to that third spring, if this kid's not the no doubt starter. What's to say he's not piecing out just, just like somebody else will, right? Mm. So I, I I think that the ability to go out and get quarterbacks in the transfer portal is changing quarterback recruiting some. Um in, but also the transfer portal in general is is making it to where you basically have to take a quarterback every year, either through the portal, you know, or through recruiting, because there's just not um like the chance that the guys stay on your roster is is very low. I mean, you almost need to project attrition of like QB attrition of, of one each year. I, I like, I really like the guy's idea here. I just don't think that the buy-in from recruits and the timeline that you as a coach know it'll probably take to get this guy ready. I, I don't think sticking to that timeline is nearly as easy, especially when you got some of these private quarterback coaches and handlers who are you know banking on this kid getting to the NFL so they can get their payday. Like they're, they're looking for playing time. That That's the main reason these guys transfer is they can go somewhere and play. Patience yeah. is not, not common. Yeah. I, I think that it could work with more.
1: If you're not dealing with the, the uh, top shelf items, if, you, if you're just dealing with guys in your developmental program, it could work, but I, I don't see it happening for, you know, top shelf quarterbacks.
0: I was thinking about the NFL draft where it's like a, like isn't that why we're seeing quarterbacks just continue to just drift up towards the top of the draft because you're figuring you might as well just go ahead and, and take a flyer on him because if he hits then we've got replacement level quarterbacks that are available like what's I mean is that just a, a numbers difference or are we talk about the number of players available the number of NFL teams and and things like that
1: I think it's a couple factors I think it's I, I think we're approaching an era where the NFL is finally kind of adopting a college model where quarterbacks are more replaceable than I think, you know, most people realize, like you, you have your franchise guys, but like they're, they're for the most part, they're interchangeable after that. But uh, I think it's that, I think it's the fact that the quarterback is obviously the most important position, but I also think that first round draft picks in the NFL, <clears throat> you get an extra year on their contract. Mm-hmm. So to have a quarterback on a rookie contract get that extra year, if the guy does pan out in a salary cap world that's an extremely valuable thing to have so that's why I always feel like teams at the end of the first round I would either be trying to shop that pick to somebody who wants to come up and get a quarterback or I might be just taking a quarterback myself like if I'm the Buccaneers this year and I've got the last pick in the first round and I know I've got Tom Brady if like a Mac Jones or somebody like one of those like that second tier group of QBs the top one, if I like one of them, I would very strongly consider taking them with the last pick of the first round just for the fact that I would get that extra year on their contract.
2: This is also uh, something that has changed recently in the NFL due to the, like the, who was the last quarterback? Was it Stafford? who had, Or was it Sam Bradford who had the, the absolutely insane deal? I think it was Bradford. I can't, it was one of them. I think it was Bradford. Like before they put in the, the salary structure per, per where you're slotted or whatever. Yeah, and the union basically ate its young. Yeah. I, I agree with Tom. I, I think that's that's a really good observation. I mean, the, the term QB proofing has been thrown around a lot and like having an offense that is not super dependent on the QB. I do think we're seeing the best college teams, you know, do that. I think Ryan Day is a good enough coach. I think Lincoln Riley is a good enough coach to where you have that much talent around you. You know, the scheme is good. Like, I don't think there's going to be an enormous drop-off in Ohio State's offense this year. And that is not a reflection on Justin Fields. So mm-hmm. I think I think the world of I, I don't think Bama's offense is going to drop off that much I think they found a way to not fully QB proof but like, like you can't tie your success that much to the quarterback and there are some coaches out there I'm interested to see if if they can take that next step and that's and that's a part of the reason why
1: Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day's names are always being floated as possible NFL coaches yeah
0: yeah Bradford I think was the last one to get it in the 2010 draft and then you know who the next number one pick was Cam, Cam Newton one Cam, year away from the big payday son of a gun
2: but he uh, stayed in the league though so like that yeah
0: yeah cam's cam's fine um, cam's been fine <laughs> yeah cam's good yeah. uh
1: plus i mean he made plenty at auburn
0: hey but,
1: uh, you mean mississippi state <laughs> sorry <laughs> well it's it's an ongoing investigation
0: yeah uh as they say all right this one comes from nate Love the podcast. Even though I miss Barton, I've enjoyed Bud since podcast ain't played nobody appearances. And to my surprise, even Danny has grown on me. Chip is NC bro personified and Tom, Tom brings the needed Midwestern cranky to balance out all that ACC Midwestern cranky. We're Midwestern Midwestern so nice, nice. Yeah. Are talking about always a fun mix. My, my question is, and this is one of the only college football podcasts that can truly handle this. I just listened to an interview with Kevin Kelly, the Arkansas high school coach who never punts and often goes for onside kicks or two-point conversions. He's very analytics-driven, using using them to find inefficiencies his teams can exploit to beat more talented high school teams. The interview on another podcast I won't name here, but you can find hyped him as a possible Kansas head coaching candidate, but would his approach even work at the power five level? I imagine you can be successful facing high school opponents who aren't prepared for this approach, but could it work at a Kansas type school where your opponents are power five teams with 20 analysts to break down what you were doing and big boy coaches who can game plan against you, Tom and others have advocated for the Paul Johnson style option, but I think this would be an intriguing choice even if it didn't work, it would be fun to watch. What say you guys, Nate?
2: I would say, like, first of all, it's the Andy Staples show. We, we, we don't have to be that petty. Like, like they they've actually referenced us before. So, like, I I don't have nothing against Andy. Um, it was a good interview.
0: That was I and, and that, that was in the question. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't want to say that I was right. Right. Yeah, right. I was yeah, not. Yeah. I was not redacting Andy Staples' name from uh from the Andy Staples show.
1: Andy Staples is a wonderful food blogger with a football podcast.
0: <laughs> All right.
2: So this is this actually. I'm going to tie this to Illinois too. Um, so they were interviewing some of Illinois players, and they were talking about this football 101 class that Brett Bielema is putting on for his guys. And in it, uh, let me see if I can find this. Because I, I sent this to a buddy of mine who works in analytics. And uh, the end of the quote from I believe it's one of the receivers. He said, "Each class is different." Uh, Navarro pointed out the first down philosophy on both sides of the ball. Four yards or more on offense is considered success, and then fewer than three yards allowed on defense is the preference. Now, here's the thing my analytics buddy says, Yeah, and I don't know, I'm not going to use his name because I don't know if he wants to be quoted. He said, Every coach I've talked to uses four yards on first down, but we know that's actually not enough, right? Like, that's too conservative. That'll lead to too much punting. It's actually not enough to get four yards. Like, five yards is what sets off a successful drive. If you only gain four yards, on your first play of the drive, you very likely are not going to score, right? It's counterintuitive, but like, if, honestly, the defensive one is, is too low and the offensive one is too low there. Now, Kevin Kelly, for those of you guys who don't know, he, ne- he never punts. He always onside kicks pretty much. I think he's punted like, I don't know, 10 times in 18 years, or something like that. Uh, I kind of have mixed feelings on this. I think Kevin Kelly would actually have a pretty good tactical advantage over a lot of the coaches who coach scared and who coach not to get criticism from their fans, boosters, people who don't actually understand the math of the game. But only certain things would translate. High school teams really struggle. And I've been to a lot of high school championship games where this has happened. They can't recover onside kicks worth a damn. Colleges can, right? I do not think the nonstop onside kicking would work nearly as much in the college game. I think that you'd have, unless you had a guy who's really, really good at it. But the not punning thing, assuming that, and Kelly himself said in the interview that like he would scale this to the the you know the point scoring environment of the college game. Absolutely, it, uh, anybody who has a better grasp on field positional value relative to the scoreboard uh, than a lot of current college coaches do, and they have these analytics teams they hire and then you know, proceed to ignore. Or they they you know they they uh, they farm it out to sports source analytics. They get the binder, They're like, all right, yeah, let's go over the binder, cool. And then they proceed to ignore the binder. Um anybody who has a better grasp on this would probably have a tactical advantage. Now, I have no idea how good of a coach Kevin Kelly is, you know, outside of that. Um, I think he's probably a pretty decent one given that he wins a lot of in, in I you know Arkansas high school without a whole lot of talent, although it's small classification, and he's beaten some really good high schools out there. But that, that's kind of my take. I think he, absolutely his approach would work. But if he did it and it worked, his edge would would disappear quickly because other other schools would start to do it. Yeah, like I, I think that
1: it could definitely be successful, I think. But I, I also think that kind of like the triple option, it'd be high variance results. Like I, I think that if you're doing that, there's some situations, like if you're running an option and you get down multiple scores, it's really hard for you to come back because you're not used to throwing. If you're taking a lead and you're running that we never punt, we always go for it, it might be more difficult to protect your lead now because if you or maybe not, but you know, you you turn it over on downs, you're not, you know, kicking off all that kind of stuff. You you could be giving your opponent great field position and increasing their ability to come back on you. So I think that I think that you'd find success at it. But like Bud just said, if you did find too much success doing it, pretty soon everybody would be doing it. The edge is gone. But I also think that. what's the word I'm looking for? I I just think that there'd be a lot of variance in it and it wouldn't work often enough to where you'd be winning like conferences and national titles. I think you'd probably pull off an upset once in a while, but I don't think you can do anything. I I don't think you could do anything 100% of the time and be successful. I think that you have to have some flexibility. I think there are times where the numbers tell you to do something, but you have to be able to go against what the numbers tell you based on what you know. And I think that if you're too reliant on just following one set blueprint, it
0: could lead to problems. Yeah,
2: look, there's no doubt.
0: I mean, it's just not what I want football to be, all right? Is this what we want football to be? No punts? Punts are beautiful. They soar through the sky. They land in that perfect little coffin corner and roll on out of bounds. Johnny Townsend didn't use that leg so we could take punts out of the game. I am not going 28-23 and 23 against the spread, picking NCAA tournament games, slowly but surely saving money to send my son Little Punt to Australia so that he can come back and then get a Division One scholarship. I want punting to be in the game uh, 18 years from now. I love punts. That's just me.
2: I would say okay. <laughs> we also have to consider the trickle down economics of this that it has on on the hustle that is the long snapping coaching community. Yes. Right. Like like yes. that that's big too. Um, Tom, I think your variance point, like, if I can express it in a different way, I think they would lose more games by like 70, mm-hmm. but they would also win yeah. more games. Yes. You know what I mean? Like the blowout, the magnitude of the blowouts would be much bigger, but they would also win some more games, which right now they don't win any games. So I think they would take that. Like who cares if you lose by seventy or hundred? Uh, although maybe a hundred gets you on the news, so you, you know you don't want your hundreds.
0: <laughs> yeah, was that like Cumberland? Is yeah. It, yeah, Georgia Tech against Cumberland? No, gross. Uh, sorry, Tom, didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have? You believe in punts? Say, like,
1: yeah, and like Bud brought up, like the, the long snapper thing, and I just feel like Australia's economy, because you mentioned the Australian punter industry complex that they have going over there. When out got all these punters and sending them to america and making billions of dollars doing so it would completely tank the australian economy
0: come on we're talking you know the international economy here we need punting
1: like like that tanker or that that shipping container that is just currently stuck in the suez canal getting rid of punting would throw the world economy on its head
0: Ugh. He is Tom Fernelli You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. He is Bud Elliott. You can follow him at Bud Elliott 3 You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We will be back next week with more spring gleaning. We got the Pac-12. We got the Big 12. You want to make sure that you get it, so make sure you're subscribed to the Cup 3 Podcast wherever you get your podcast, Gentlemen, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.